The notion of the urban and the city in geomedia studies is key to its disciplinary focus, even if at times this functions to highlight those spaces and places beyond the metropolitan, which of course themselves have a dynamic and cultural life to be considered. We hear talk of the smart city, the media city and the postmodern city. The idea of an urban landscape draws attention to how the terms and vocabulary of terrain and environment are reconfigured to describe something of this experience of a dense and endlessly changing place that is characterised by flows of people and things. Within modernity, this experience of speed and movement has been depicted in photography and subsequently in film. Film as a medium captures this movement, and from the beginning of its emergence, practitioners have sought out these scenes of everyday life, whether transport hubs, factory gates or busy streets. Such footage provides a profoundly engaging spectacle of daily life beyond the artifice of stage drama. Hello and welcome to the Geomedia podcast. I am John Lynch, Associate Professor in Film and Media at Karlstad University in Sweden. Today in the podcast, I talk to Les Roberts, Senior Lecturer in Cultural and Media Studies in the Department of Communication and Media at the University of Liverpool. Les is the author of the 2012 work Film, Mobility and Urban Space, a Cinematic Geography of Liverpool, and in 2018, the book Spatial Anthropology, Excursions in Liminal Space. I talk with Les about his work in film, the city, and the increasing significance of location in cultural production. Welcome, Les. Um, you're based in Liverpool. Liverpool is a, a, a place that has a very uh, rich and unique kind of history, mm -hmm. certainly uh, movement of people in different ways. I mean, it has a history with the slave trade, which is one thing, mm -hmm. but also in terms of, of migrants and an island and, and things like this. So um, it's a, historically, then, it's a very dynamic city and has its own unique character. It you, sure worked a, you worked on a film, uh, on a project, uh, City in Film, Liverpool's Urban Landscape and the Moving Image. Can yep. you tell us something about that and what kind of material then you were able to uh, to, to, to find and, and work with? Yeah, I mean, that project happened. Um, I'd, I'd newly arrived in the northwest from London, where I just finished my PhD, which was on cinematic geographies of travel and migration in a range of different films that I was looking at. Um, so the postdoc post came up uh, at a fortuitous moment, and the connections with Liverpool intrigued me as well. As you say, a place steeped in history of movement and migration and um, these kinds of things. So I started work on the project, which was um, an interdisciplinary project from the outset. It was a collaboration between the Department of Politics and Communication, as it was then called, and the School of Architecture. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it came about partly as well because Liverpool um, had, in 2003, won its bid to become the European Capital of Culture in 2008. Uh, so bearing in mind that I started on that project in 2006 and the project was, was scheduled to end in 2008. Um, that gives some kind of background context of, of why it was happening. Uh, and But in terms of 
of the films that we was looking at, it it came about, I think, largely as a recognition that a lot of the archival material um, about Liverpool, which there is a considerable amount, um, it's not really being consolidated or, or kind of put under one roof, metaphorically speaking, that is, uh, in terms of trying to just map where things were, what they were. So from the first part of the project really was just that, just an archival process of collation, going to archives, identifying um, what material uh, about Liverpool uh, was held in archives. Obviously, this is the main archives, so in the northwest we had the Northwest Film Archive, but the British Film Institute Archive, um, other places we went to, Imperial War Museum. There's a whole range of different archives. So a lot of the early phase of the project was really just archival viewing. The other key part of the project, this is kind of more on the architectural side, how that was kind of influencing it was that it was all about space. It was all about the urban landscape. Um, so we weren't just looking at films that just had some vague connection with Liverpool. It had to be films that um, showed the landscape in some way, recognisably Liverpool, okay? uh, because so much of Liverpool uh, has kind of changed for various different reasons. It was really heavily bombed in the Second World War. Um, there was kind of major... Uh, replanning, redevelopment in the kind of 60s, a lot of it quite disastrous. Um, so large parts of the cities uh, just kind of disappeared and, uh, and rebuilt. And so it partly became interesting just looking at the, the footage we re really quickly latched onto was footage of um, parts of the city that just weren't there anymore and trying to bring that awareness, that spatial awareness of a space of memory, here was a city as it was, and trying to bring that into relation to the city as it is now. Um, so that was very much the underpinning of the kind of film, because there's lots of films that we were looking at, but there's, there's certain qualities that we were particularly hunting down in films. That was one of them. Another one was uh, filmic material which depicted the city in, in very kind of almost observational ways. So uh, actuality films like Mitchell and Kenyon, um, uh, a lot of that was shot in Liverpool. Uh, and there's a wonderful film just of a tram ride. So you've got a phantom ride from Pierhead all the way up through Liverpool, through Church Street. And stuff. That stuff is goldmine stuff um, because you're seeing it in what would it be, 1901, 1902. What did you call it? A phantom? It's phantom ride. Phantom uh, ride. Yeah, what does that where, mean? Uh, where the camera is just placed um, either on the front of a tram or, or on the side uh, and it's just filming the journey effectively. Right. Um, and interesting that the, the very first images that were ever sh moving images that were shot of Liverpool were um, by the Lumiere brothers cameraman Alexander Premio um, uh, and uh, part of those because he went to three places um, one of those was um, uh, a tracking shot you could call it a phantom ride that was that was taken from the uh, overhead railway which is an elevated railway which ran the whole length of the docks so you've got this beautiful tracking shot, just looking out at the docks that, again, very, very different, or uh, looking out to the river, uh, and you just get the sense of the, the sheer busyness and bustling kind of um, place it was then, okay? Um, so it's that kind of material that we, we were really kind of latching onto. So early actualities, but then um, the other 
material that really excited us and we ended up working a lot with was amateur film, particularly post-war amateur film. Um, and that was already held in archive or did you do some kind of collection process? Uh, uh, mainly collection. Uh, a lot of that wasn't in archives um, for kind of partly historical reasons in the 80s for those who, who aren't uh, um, up to speed on the kind of politics of Liverpool in the 80s there was a kind of very fractious period um, there was a, um, a kind of Trotskyite faction of Labour uh, running the local council um, giving a kind of two fingers up to Margaret Thatcher who was in the, who was um, Prime Minister at the time um, and I don't know there, there was a lot of tension uh, a lot of um, stuff going on around uh, people not wanting to um, engage with, with the council f f for different reasons. And one of those was that the, uh, the, the, the film archive in Manchester um, wouldn't engage with anything from, from Liverpool. So that was partly the reason why there was a lot of uh, archival material that just didn't go anywhere. It was just kind of in a void, just places like that. Um, and the amateur filmmakers themselves were very suspicious of what might happen if if they deposited their material in an archive. I think for quite good reasons. Uh, they were using this material themselves that they put on regular cine club events where they would screen this old material. Uh, so it wasn't just the archival value of the films and what they show. It's also that you know they had social value in, in that they were still using them. People were gathering, talking about them, opening up spaces of memory. You know, oh look, there's the overhead railway. As it was, it, it's pulled down in the 1950s. Um, so there was a reluctance to to, to put that a lot, a lot of that stuff in the archives. So we ended up uh, working with a lot of amateur filmmakers uh, and coming. And, via the material through them and there was one particular um, person I, I, I should pay credit to this is Angus Tilston MBE he, he got his MBE for services to local kind of her cultural heritage and film he was uh, he's brilliant he, he was so helpful uh, he was our first point of contact because he wasn't just the filmmaker uh, he headed up this uh, cine club called Swan uh, Swan Cine Club and then they changed the name to Swan Movie Makers which is interesting because no one did cine anymore. Um, but uh, he wasn't just a, a filmmaker, uh, he was a collector. Uh, and he gained a reputation over time where people would just uh, deposit films with him. So if people died and they found a stash of uh, old reels of film that, that a, a, a film enthusiast, an amateur film enthusiast had, um, they would invariably find their way to Angus. Um, so mm. we had that rich source of material. So it was the actuality material from the early period uh, and uh, post-war period, the amateur films, because a lot of that was shots of the city, mm. um, everyday life scenes, um, some of it quite ethnographic, just observational stuff, just the flow and rhythm of the city streets and stuff like that. That was the stuff I was really kind of uh, drawn to. Did you edit this into, a, into any kind of feature-length study in some way? My colleague Richard Couric and his wife Monica, they um, they used some of the material, um, well, for, for, uh, on a couple of projects. They, they edited a kind of short documentary uh, that was used um, as part of what's called Liverpool Big Screen, which is um, a project run by the BBC. It's been discontinued now. Uh, but in a number of cities around the UK, they would, the BBC would have a, just a big TV screen in, in a public space. 
and it was showing a lot of BBC content news and stuff like that. But part of their remit was to include kind of local arts-based content or stuff local communities were doing. And as part of that, um, we, we showed clips of old archive films uh, that went out at certain points during the day. And that was kind of really interesting because you're in this kind of hyper-modern consumer retail environment looking up at these old images of Liverpool that are kind of mm. depicting a very, very different city. So that that kind of dynamic or interaction between uh, the archival city that we're witnessing on screen uh, and the flow and the rhythms of the city as we experience it now were also a key part of what, what we kind of get out of, of that material. So it wasn't just about capturing the city as it was, it was bringing it into dialogue with the city as it is now and questions around the quality of urban space, mm. place making uh, and what people feel about the city now, you know, uh, these, these kinds of things. So that, that idea of dialogue in that way um, is interesting and as you say, uh, Liverpool along with several other cities throughout the UK in that period had riots and, and mm-hmm. there was uh, conflict around race and, and, and policing and the, the kind of social contract, you know, that was stretch, shall we say, and deindustrialization. Yep. So the capital, this idea of the capital of culture, this seems to be a, a sort of attempt to um, represent um, places um, in certain ways. How do you see that, that process of sort of uh, development in the use of culture then to reconfigure? Is it something that has a democratic element to it or is it something more of a sort of external process um it's a good question it's not an easy one to ask answer uh fully. i mean within the existing kind of structures of of how we come at what a city of culture is or capital of culture um because um I mean, it was fantastic for Liverpool. It was really good for Liverpool being the city of culture. Uh, but at the same time, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend it was all wonderful and, uh, um, you know, beyond criticism because uh, it wasn't. Um, and a lot of people felt disconnected from from what was happening. Um, it was seen to be a lot of the culture. It, yeah, what what wasn't perhaps discussed enough is what actually was meant by culture. Uh, culture was something that was that was consumed. It was part of the cultural industries, uh, for good reason, because it was partly you know a mechanism to to drive that and boost the c- cultural and creative industries uh, and use that as part of the wider economic development of Liverpool. Uh, and in that respect, it, it was enormously successful. Uh, but a lot of people felt slightly maybe disconnected from it. So kind of their culture uh, wasn't seen as part of that. Um, there was a kind of hiccup very early on because uh, the Capital of Culture programme ran with this slogan called The World in One City, uh, Liverpool, World in One City, which it is in many respects. Uh, mm. It's a very cosmopolitan city yeah. uh, once you get to know it. Um, but the, the image, the face of the city that it presents isn't always um, as cosmopolitan as it, as it should be. Okay. Um, and uh, th- there was a bit of contention, or a lot of contention, that arose early on because a lot of um, minority groups, uh, different cultures, different ethnicities within Liverpool felt their voice wasn't really being adequately taken on board. Uh, and they took issue with this kind of what they saw as appropriating the idea of cultural difference and diversity uh, just to make it look kind of sexy for, uh, you know, 
for the noises you need to make to become a capital of culture, that kind of thing. So there's a bit of disconnect between how culture was being used as a promotional tool as part of this neoliberal program of culture-led regeneration. Um, and what happens on the, on the fringes, the kind of um, what Maria Georgiou calls um, vernacular cosmopolitanism. Um, I, I've always found that distinction very useful that she makes between neoliberal cosmopolitanism, which is very much the uh, capital of culture, shebang, all that kind of stuff, and vernacular cosmopolitanism, which is the kind of the real live spaces of difference, um, localities, uh, people, the things that might be off the grid or off the map of how they feed into representations of place. So there's a disconnect, and I think there still is. Uh, people would disagree with me on this, uh, I'm sure. There's still a big disconnect in a certain respect. Speaking about Liverpool, and I expect this applies to other cities as well, there's a big disconnect between the representation of the image of the city and the, the spatial stories that you might expect to kind of extract from that uh, and the reality of, of people's live, Liverpool as it's experienced, okay, uh, for good or bad. I mean, it's not just telling nice, happy stories. That, that there's a, Liverpool uh, has had a lot of problems, uh, you know, uh, the riots that you mentioned, the toxic riots, um, the slavery links and stuff like that. That should all be out in the open, and it kind of is, okay. So part of what we was doing on the project was, uh, yeah, all, all of that, kind of contested history um, uh, but a lot of that 80s stuff funny enough the um, the riots that came by video and we had to negotiate this kind of tricky balance between are we just looking at film or are we looking at video mm. um, and I'm not sure we ever quite resolved that but we, we kind of had a, a date deadline which is kind of the 80s vaguely although we didn't we keep it there um, but, yeah, so a lot of stuff was video, and of course you, you still use that. So uh, videos were being made of the riots and stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, uh, the aim is to kind of tap into that in what a way, whatever way you can, the vernacular, the lived, uh, the, the kind of diverse experiences that people have, how, how they are articulating culture, how they put it into practice. Trying to tap into that and use that in a way to kind of feed this idea of diverse spatial stories. I come back to that. It's just storytelling about a place, about a city, uh, but done in a way that's kind of authentically uh, linked to people's actual real everyday life experience and the histories uh, and the memories that they bring to that and not just kind of whitewashing and sanitising it just for kind of instrumental uh, commercial uh, reasons, which is what a lot of the city of culture and capital of culture, to me, seems to be about. So you use the phrase cinematic geographies, I think cinematic cartography, you, mm. you uh, I found as well. What, what do you mean by, by that? How does that work as a, a way to, uh, you know, think and, and, and uh, analyse and examine? It's a good question. Um, I mean, people get frustrated with, with my take on, on labels because part, I, I like to kind of break them down and, and I like to uh, spread confusion rather than clarity. <laughs> um, and good I think, job you're a teacher. <laughs> yeah, the students love me for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so cinematic cartography is a, is a good example. So it, it, a deep mapping, I won't get into that, but that was another term recently that, that I revisited um, for the same reason. So I, how I approached cinematic cartography, I'll speak to that because that was the question. Um, 
I'd noticed that that was being talked about from different kind of backgrounds in different ways. Okay. Um, a lot of the time, they didn't necessarily link up. Okay, so uh, a cartographer might be using cinema and film or moving image materials in a very particular way. Um, or someone like... Um, so, so how would a cartographer use cinema in that sense? Cartographer in a sense of a map maker? Yeah, the, the, they're, they're coming process. at it first and, first and foremost through uh, what is required for the process of map making, so cartography. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the moving image becomes another kind of uh, medium that, that you can work with in that. And there's a lot of really interesting work right. that's been done to kind of make... Um, <clears throat> And this does get into the deep mapping bit, but make maps that are kind of time-based, that, that are kind of deep, dimensional, multi-media. Um, uh, so you can use a lot of a range of different resources, digital resources particularly, uh, to kind of transform what maps and cartography are. So there's some really interesting stuff mm -hmm. that's going on there. But it's not necessarily anything that, that would... Uh, be something that would link up directly with what someone in the film studies department might be doing, for example. So, who was it? Tom Conley wrote a book, 2007, I think, called Cartographic Cinema. If you looked at that, um, mm. it's very, very different. It's, it's kind of taking cartography in a far more kind of metaphorical vein, mm. okay? Uh, and it's not really about cartography as a cartographer would recognize it. Um, so uh, a lot of the language, the concepts uh, seemed kind of very interesting and very slippery in terms of how, the, how they were being put in, into practice from different disciplinary vantage points. Um, so that was kind of what I was intrigued by. So I, 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 my approach, uh, I wrote an article about this in um, the editor collection Mapping Cultures. So I was looking at cinematic cartography, but I was trying to look at it from a number of different angles. So it's not just one thing. Um, because it isn't. Uh, you know, there's stuff being done around tourism and movie mapping and stuff like that. So, so cartography comes in there. Um, so uh, part of why I was looking at cartography or how it was mainly how it was being talked about. It was kind of mapping um, um, the discourse of cinematic cartography, how uh, tropes or metaphors or, or, or actual applications of mapping practices and cinema were coming together. Uh, but being very mindful that um, uh, it is, uh, you know, there are these disjunctures. It, mm. It's a very kind of multidisciplinary kind of landscape. Uh, uh, and I, I've always kind of found it very productive to kind of hover on the boundaries between disciplines and, and where ideas and concepts might break down or, or, or not break down but uh, there's points of contention between how one uh, practitioner or, or, or one someone coming from one academic background might be talking about a subject and how someone from someone else might be talking about it uh, and interestingly and I discovered this partly on the City and Film Project working, there were some really frustrating conversations with some of the architects um, frustrating but really useful as well so what you know? What does space? What does landscape mean? Okay. Well, well you tell me. You know, <laughs> how are you coming at it? This kind of thing. So um, for me now, uh, if you said cinematic cartography, it's not a term. I, I, I would respond with, yeah, great. Let's talk about it. But what exactly? What exactly do you mean by it? Okay. Uh, how are you coming at it? From where are you coming at it from? Um, I guess where I've gone now with with 
a lot of this stuff <clears throat> and the theorising and, and putting it into practice is beyond both cinema and or beyond both film and beyond cartography as well. It's it's a kind of wider sense of, of space uh, yeah. uh, and how culture and cultural practices dovetail into and shape uh, and challenge our understandings of space and what space is, that kind of thing. So mapping for me is just a means to an end, really. Um, the cartographers would hate that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's... Well, maps are made to be used, so... They are made to be used. Um, uh, but there's map art as well. Um, Gloria Lancy, who's, who's a PhD student, uh, I've got currently who I'm supervising, is doing some really interesting work on uh, uh, work that artists are doing that falls under this... Uh, um, falls in the remit of what cartography might be. Mm. But just looking at a range of different artists... Um, there's very different approaches to, you know, what a map is, uh, what a cartographic practice is in relation to your individual kind of mode of art, artistic or aesthetic practice. Uh, so even within the kind of visual arts, which is kind of where she's working, you, you get all these different kind of approaches and, uh, and understandings and epistemological foundations about what it is that space, that a map is, uh, and how your artwork is kind of speaking to that or, or, or whatever it's doing. So, um, yeah, I, I like um, the blurred edges rather than the clarity of these terms. Yeah, it's, it, it kind of reminded me sort of both cinematically and also in terms of attitudes towards disciplines of... Uh, of what's described as edge lands, yeah, and those spaces, you know, their their boundaries and their spaces, you know, but they're uh, they're, they're kind of neglected, and uh, you know, and and, uh, and they are. There's an emptiness there, and uh, what? Well, uh, yeah, not necessarily an emptiness. There can be an emptiness. There can there, be, but yeah. they can be productive meeting grounds where people are just stumbling into one another. Don't well, quite know what they're doing. People that live there. There's, there's 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 cultures there. I mean, you know, but there's they they're not usually kind of uh, and just transient spaces as well in different ways yeah so, yeah i mean yeah. for me i was part yeah edge lands is, is, is a really good kind of way of thinking about that because you know you haven't got an edge you've got an edge land yeah. you can't identify the precise point and if we're talking about this metaphorically in relation to disciplines then uh, i mean this applies to lots of disciplines but particularly this thing called medium communication studies i mean you know what is that? I mean, where is that? Where, where do you draw a boundary between around what, how we might demarcate the, the, the terrain, the territory, where we as media and communication scholars kind of inhabit? Um, that's an increasingly hard question to kind of answer because uh, we, we are being drawn in all sorts of different directions. Uh, and I think that's very exciting and it's very productive. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's what Geomeda is that's his underpinning thesis yeah really. i think so yeah i think that's uh, that's definitely part of its kind of motivation you use the phrase new empiricism in film studies well oh, yeah i knew that one would come back and bite me <laughs> or is this one you've uh, that re reflected on or no i'd still stand by it that was um <clears throat> an introduction that i wrote with with julia hallam who who um was really the driving force, I should have said this earlier, behind the City in Film project and the subsequent project that we both worked on, which is called Mapping the City in Film. It was a follow-on project. Um, but I, yeah, we edited this book, um, uh, Locating the Moving Image, New Approaches to Film and Place, I think that's right. Um, and uh, what it 
mainly aimed to do was draw together scholars who've been working with uh, specifically geospatial tools. So we're talking digital maps, GIS. So uh, one of the things we did on the Mapping City and Film Project, which started in 2008, um, there was a lot of us, uh, not just in film, but it, it, colleagues in, in the university working in popular music and place. Uh, we, we were kind of stumbling towards this thing called GIS, but none of us really exactly knew what it was, but we thought it might be worth kind of exploring and finding out where it took us. And it was an exploring, it was an interesting and kind of valuable journey. I, I'm not sure I'd go back and use GIS in any major way now. Um, uh, because it, it's it's far too big and unwieldy for, for what we need working in arts and humanities kind of um, backgrounds in in media and film. It, that it's it's but a, a lot of scholars were doing some interesting stuff with GIS, um, but trying to square that circle of using uh, technology which is devised for a very kind of well, uh, very positivistic ends <laughs> really. Uh, uh, um, you know, planning uh, and you know detailed uh, cartographic um, analysis and geovisualizations and things like that. How to kind of harness that uh, uh, usefully as part of your analysis of film and the geographies of film. Um, and so there's a lot of there was a lot of empirical work going on. Uh, so people were were doing interviews with people, were, were rummaging around in archives, looking at old maps. Um, Robert C. Allen was doing some really interesting work with old kind of fire maps. I can't remember what they were called now. Um, uh, it, What's it, a fire map? Uh, a map that was drawn up for um, kind of... Um, for purposes of, uh, you know, uh, fire prevention and things like that. Uh, so public spaces. Um, so the maps were, were, were being made for very specific calls uh, but the, in his research these maps were being made I can't remember the dates of it kind of uh, uh, 20s 30s 40s but that they were capturing kind of racial segregated kind of geographies of uh, where people were going to watch film um, in, in the southern states in, in this period so he, he was managing to use uh, maps that were never intended for any purposes around cinema going uh, very very usefully to kind of plot um, in an empirical way, he's, he's drawing on this material and making some observations about cinema-going practices. Okay, so uh, a lot of this stuff was going on, interviews, <coughs> working with materials. It was beyond, you know, you weren't just analysing films. It was deeply contextual in what people were doing. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to kind of capture that, that sense of it. it it's, empir it's empirical. It's not necessarily empiricism in the kind of conventional way, but it's it, it's empiricism. It's in the language of film, it's going beyond textual analysis. Which mm. uh, and this is another point Robert C. Allen brought out. Uh, he said that quite often in his experience, there was a lot of resistance to, to kind of speaking outside of that you know dominant way of thinking about film just all about textual analysis mm -hmm. and it was a real struggle to get any other kind of way of thinking about it um so we just ran with the idea of new new empiricism because it seemed to be a lot of film scholars that were kind of uh, the snapshot of those in that book but a lot of what others are doing as well um we're, we're doing some really interesting stuff with empirically drawing on a range of different materials um to kind of reopen 
geographies and spaces of film and memory and how we can think about film uh, historically, but also what that might feed into contemporary understandings of the relationship between film, moving image and urban landscapes, really. So that, that was kind of what I meant by a new empiricism. So that leads to, uh, I think, a, a, an interesting area in your work. If we think about, as you say, the idea of the moving image and, and film and television, uh, things like television series, television drama, um, and increasingly it seems um, uh, the, the locations for these um, uh, cinematic events, whether it's a film or a television series, um, themselves then become important in terms of things like regional development. They're supported by regional agencies, mm -hmm. and uh, and we have a, a a new kind of tourism industry of visitors, and um, and that's a very interesting kind of phenomenon. I think of uh, you yeah. know the um, the 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 way in which these dramas, shall we say. Um, become that sort of significant in people's lives that they will go to the trouble to visit mm -hmm. in other countries and people come to Sweden of course to, to see certain things what's your engagement with this with this process because I think it, I think it's an important one and, and an interesting one what, what's your it is an important one um, and it's another one that that, that fits this kind of pattern as I was speaking about before where, where uh, how how the subject area, however you label it, film-induced tourism, um, film-related tourism, movie to screen tourism, media tourism, there's a lot of terms kind of swimming around. Um, how it's been approached uh, has tended to be from very different perspectives. And a lot of the early work was done with this was come from like business and marketing mm. people and stuff like that. Because um, of the economic benefit that it brings in to the regions and stuff. Yeah, th th their interest was very much an instrumental one. You know, how can how can we um, harness yeah. this stuff uh, f for marketing and uh, and place promotion and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, given that myself and colleagues were working in the, you know the whole area between the relationship between film, space, and landscape, and all this kind of stuff, it, it was inevitable that we would stumble at some point around what was going on with with, with film tourism. Um, um, I mean, I've been quite involved with this, and uh, I've been part of the International Tourism and Media Conference, which runs every two years, uh, which is a great bunch of people, and there's some really interesting work that's been done on that um, and um, how sustainable it is is a question I, I think the idea of film tourism itself is quite a tricky one because uh, you know does that include television well it has to because uh, so much of what people go and visit now is, is through TV uh, but also gaming comes into this as well you know uh, um, so I've tended to kind of. Sorry, how does gaming come into come into this? Uh, well, games that have a, a strong kind of geographical element. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a big game person myself, but um, you know, uh, you, you, it's 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 a visual audiovisual medium like any other, where there's a capacity to play on obvious tropes and images of cities. Okay. Right. So it's 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 you know, so it's not medium specific. That's the important thing. Mm. So it's. It's what audiovisual or moving image material of whatever colour or stripe um, 
how that creates imaginaries of places, okay, and what goes on in that process. Um, so I don't know, a screen tourism is one I, I might use more often, or more broadly, more media tourism. Um, so there's some interesting work being done on this, um, but I'm, it's slightly, um, sometimes it's talked about as if it's a kind of new phenomenon. And, mm. it, it, and in some respect it is, uh, you know, like mediatised tourism. Well, since it's very, <laughs> since the very earliest developments of tourism, media has always played a part. Tourism has always been mediatised. So, you know, it's... So tourism comes into existence at the point at which photography yeah. comes into existence <laughs> in the two processes are intrinsically linked in that way are they yeah exactly the, the, you know um not to be too kind of generalist with this but uh, if anyone who's uh has a desire to travel somewhere uh in most cases they would have uh some sense of expectation or imagination of what it is people don't blindly i mean you can do this you just go kind of you know arbitrarily off somewhere mm. you, you you have an idea on expectation or if you don't um, as I did before coming to Karlstedt, uh, you look it up and you mm. get a sense of, uh, you know, um, and that's reflected in what tourism guidebooks are about, postcards, mm. uh, letters that people would write home. Uh, oh, this place is wonderful. It's so colourful. The people are so nice. The food, mm. Mm. you know, these these all fit into a kind of idea or imaginary of what that place is uh, and subsequent visits and subsequent mediations build on that. Uh, so I see what's going on in film as um, film and television and all media more generally uh, as just um, a development of that. Mm. But it's the difference, I think, is that it's taking it into completely new terrain because, like you say, um, this has become part of um, economic structures now mm. uh, and a project <clears throat> that I've got on the go with uh, well, Anne-Marie Wada. Mm is leading the project. This is a film screen tourism project. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's very much on the recognition of, of the cultural and economic kind of value uh, of uh, screen tourism to, to different cities and regions across Europe. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that question of value is one of the one of the thing if that project is funded, um, which I hope it is. <laughs> um, uh, if it's funded, that question of value, I think, is going to be like a really interesting question to explore because uh, what does that mean? Uh, value for who? Okay. Uh, do, do the local you know, stakeholders, if we're using that language, the, the people that live in these places, what do they benefit from this? Uh, to what extent are there, is their place just turned into a kind of Disneyland spectacle? Um, how much of it feeds into kind of authentic structures of meaning, a sense of habitus that's built up over time, and how much of it is just been kind of, um, you know, latch, just been kind of uh, slapped on because of mm. uh, just some arbitrarily uh, and perhaps unexpected success with a film that happened to use maybe only a slice of that location, but yeah, that's enough. You know, uh, we can make symbolic capital out of that. Um, one of, the, one of the things that interests me about that process particularly is is both how, uh, shall we say, an audience um, is interested in going to these places with a certain sense of recreation which itself is then facilitated. I think you talked about a Swedish town, for instance, that produced a map where you could stand and recreate 
Oh yeah. The standard uh, images you could re you could retake your own uh, pictures that would look exactly like the postcards that were produced. Yeah. So that that idea of 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 the of the uh, the institutions in that town or region, whatever, facilitating people's ability to simply recreate something, and and I get uh, you know I've not I've not been on uh, things like the the, the Valander tours or anything like that, but um, uh, I can imagine that part of a motivation is to stand in the place where. A character has stood and had yeah. a photo taken, and it's, it's a, a kind of it's an aura thing. It's, yeah, yeah, there's there's something about occupying a certain space and things. So yeah. it's both, you know, both the the way in which that's organised and facilitated, but people's desire to want to do that. It's very interesting, I think. It is, um, and again, if this project happens, that's one of the things we'd like to do more of uh, that hasn't been done. That, that, what hasn't really been researched. Uh, to the extent that it should have been, I think, with a lot of this stuff, is um, actually talking to the tourists themselves. So going on tours, doing ethnographic research and asking precisely those kind of questions. Why are you here? Uh, we were talking about this yesterday. Why are you here sitting on the beach where Max von Sydow was playing chess with <laughs> with death? Um, you know, and just kind of... And you know there's going to be someone there with a chessboard. There's got to be someone there with a chessboard. But what you hope... Offering wouldn't... to take a photo for $20. But what you hope wouldn't happen off the back of this is that at some point uh, a little shop sets, you know, selling Seventh Seal memorabilia and chessboards, you know. It's, that, chess that's, set. that tips over beyond what you should have there. But, well, there is a kitsch element to it, isn't there? I mean, I guess. With, with all of this in a way. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. it's... Um, which is, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but there is... You know that. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't want to at all sound sniffy about this because people have different motivations uh, for wanting to go to places, and it, it may be uh, this is the other important thing. I think sometimes the the argument of film induced tourism, let's use that term, is 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 quite overplayed. I, I think, with some few exceptions, maybe like Lord of the Rings, maybe Game of Thrones. In most cases, people aren't induced. To travel purely through something that they've seen, it might be part of um, the media that they've accessed and referred to that, that's shaped their decisions and motivations for travel. Uh, but that's not the same thing as saying they've been induced by it. Um, so people travel uh, for all sorts of different reasons and motivations, and it's kind of. Uh, but the more specific stuff that's done around film, film geographies, is kind of really interesting. Uh, and I think just trying to get um, the tourist point of view on that. I mean, I myself, uh, I, I, I would describe it as a pilgrimage. A lot of fans describe what they do as pilgrimages. Mm. Uh, mm. I went to a pilgrimage to, to Tallinn to seek out the locations for Tarkovsky's Stalker. You know, okay. I, I wanted to go into the zone. Okay. <laughs> I did, yeah. It so was disappointing. The so the higher <laughs> version of this process is a pilgrimage. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. not necessarily higher. I mean, Stein Reinders in his work talks about people who, that were going that are big James Bond fans uh, mm -hmm. uh, that are going to check out locations in James Bond films as forms of pilgrimage. So it's mm -hmm. the, yeah, it's not necessarily a high low culture thing. It's okay. the, it's the idea that that you're uh, I don't know with yeah some degree of sacred. There's something that's meaningful uh, that speaks to you for whatever personal reasons they might be, and you need to consummate that sacredness in some way by going to this place. Mm -hmm. uh, but it may not just be because. 
you're a big fan of the film or you you know you really like the cinematography or or the actor or something it might but it might be that but it might also be something that the film is tied up with someone in a very personal way yeah that 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 is nothing about the film really it's about them so it's a personal journey it's a personal journey and yeah. the film they can be very private these things can't they in a sense yeah. of when people go on those things you know they um it's it's not it's not to be seen with something it's it's very uh, internal yeah. to there yeah and i've become uh, very interested in in um work that's being done now around kind of uh donald winnicott approaches uh that, that uh, this has kind of creeped back into areas of media and film studies um psychoanalysis has kind of you know kind of fallen out of favor um, in many ways, it's probably a good thing, given uh, um, how it was so dominant uh, an earlier period. But uh, psychosocial approaches uh, through Winnicott, object relations theory um, kind of approaches. And Annette Kuhn did a wonderful book, uh, Little Madnesses, which is an edited collection bringing together different people, some therapists, uh, other film scholars, uh, media scholars, because it's about social media as well, but looking at what how people themselves are, are, are tangled up with forms of culture so yeah you could look at a film that, that you really like uh, that, is, that speaks to you uh, that is an important part of your life um, you know and it, when you open up that conversation you, you may reach a point where you've stopped talking about the film and you're talking about the person I discovered this in research I've done around popular music as well um, you know the, the, the culture the the object the practice that you're focusing on um, is like a prompt or is like a vehicle to take you into that person's world uh, and then they start talking about why this film or why this piece of music is important to them what was going on in their lives at the time um, and that's I mean coming from an anthropological background that's really interesting because uh, it's the, the interbraiding of uh, of people's own sense of self with these broader structures of meaning. Um, so you've got something like that on a, you know, a film tour uh, where people may be there just, you know, what are we going to do today? Well, there's this film tour. In a very kind of superficial way, they're just, oh, it's a tour. Okay, yeah, Ingmar Bourbon. Let's carry on with that example. Yeah, Ingmar, I don't really know Ingmar Bourbon's films. I haven't watched his stuff. Um, but yeah, let's go and do the tour. And that's fine too. But other people, you know, may be <laughs> heavily invested in his work or it may be very meaningful for them in other ways. Mm. Uh, but the point is you can't kind of generalise what people are doing. Uh, you can't generalise about how people are using um, images from films in terms of informing their travel choices. Okay, There's a whole variety of different reasons. And, and a lot of that falls outside of a thing that we would call screen tourism. So uh, that's partly why I'm kind of res uh, I, I tend to resist kind of a firm imposition of this is the boundary of the subject domain that we're looking at because uh, if you just approach uh, a lot of stuff that's going on around screen tourism um, just in relation to film uh, you know you, you kind of exclude a whole lot of other stuff that would otherwise be really kind of useful uh, and relevant to take on board um, I don't know if that's answered your question there's kind of roundabout way of kind of saying it's a really important topic this and it's a growing one uh, and importantly it's multi and interdisciplinary um, but I'm not sure how sustainable it is the idea of, of kind of film tourism or, or, or something discrete to film as opposed to other forms of media imagery uh, that feed people's imaginations about places and why sure. they travel.
Okay. okay. Um, one other thing I'd say on that as well is um, because it's partly what this is being done. This goes back to the capital of culture point. Um, this stuff is very useful obviously to tap for economic reasons uh, and it can be appropriate for that and you know why not that that's as, as good a reason as any um, but what the downside of that is it can just create that kind of kind of lazy quite instrumental way of thinking about a place where it, it just becomes you know very very kind of um, uh, almost cliche kind of touristically uh, and it kind of inhibits uh, what you know, other experiences you might get out of travelling to a place, just kind of just chance and randomness and happenstance, serendipity and things like that. So, I mean, I'm interested in, in how culture or, or tapping into a sense of uh, culture and the imagination in relation to places and landscapes can kind of feed a sense of going off the map rather than hugging the map. Do you know what I mean? Um, and just uh, allowing a space of creativity to explore. Derivé. Um, Derivé, yeah. The, the, the psychogeographic kind of uh, more in that direction. Mm. Um, um, and not just the kind of dominant film as part of the tourist gaze, to, sure. to use Ari's term. Yeah. Okay, well, my final question then is I mean, um, you have your own, you've mentioned some of your own kind of. Uh, uh, Films and uh, and series and things that have, have that you've investigated a little bit. Is there uh, anything current that's getting your attention in terms of television series or films? Things that you you know is is a new new spaces and new places at all? Um, I think there is. I'm in that. I mean, I think I'm in a liminal, transitional space at the moment. Just wrote this book last year, uh, Spatial Anthropology, and that was a kind of consolidating exercise, I think, in my mind. It was kind of bring together different things I'd done, but but in a way that was consistent in terms of examining what it what it is I do, because it's not just film. Uh, I've worked in kind of other uh, media as well, and uh, uh, other forms of kind of cultural practice, popular music particularly. Um, but where I'm kind of really interested in heading towards now is um, more about uh, a kind of sense of um, ambience or atmosphere um, and time. Okay, I've done a lot of stuff on space. I think I'm heading <laughs> towards time more um, and or duration, the experience of time. Yeah, um, and lived experiential time um, and. This book, like I'm contract with with Routledge, um, I've got to write that by twenty, whenever it is, twenty twenty at some point. Um, it's called Post-Human Buddhism uh, and the Digital Self. Um, uh, film is part of that, but it's it's more examining um, uh, the idea of the self in relation to uh, digital culture, uh, what we do with it, uh, and what it does with us in terms of um, shaping our our sense of self, our embodied self. And as part of that, um, just speaking to the kind of the film element of that, um, the question of time and slowness, uh, how we might use time, uh, because time is something that in, in a lot of digital culture, it's taken from us. It's kind of um, they're siphoning off our time, uh, a lot of our time. Uh, I don't know, don't want to generalize here, but a lot of time is mindless on uh, social media it's just doing kind of stuff. Uh, you know and I do that as much as anyone else it's dead time that we're filling 
uh, and uh, someone else is controlling that. Um, so, yeah, just thinking through uh, how some of the disenchantments or some of the responses to uh, to these forms of digital culture and trying to re reappropriate or reclaim a sense of how you can make it work for your own sense of self that, that isn't going to lead to anxiety or, or some sense of... Uh, angst and um, dispossession from yourself. How can you use this to kind of tap in? So one of the areas I've been drawn to is, um, you know, people's interest in slowness. Uh, and again, this is part of a, a slow media or slow cinema is, is part of a much wider kind of discourse around slow, slow journalism is one, slow food. Um, so slowness, so trying to understand why and what's going on with slowness. and. Um, one filmmaker I've been looking at with a lot of interest, um, I should have written it down, I can't remember, a Taiwanese director who did this series of films called uh, Walker. Um, I can't remember, is it Tsai Ming Liang? I can't remember, I might have got that wrong. Um, Taiwanese filmmaker who's, I mean he's done a bunch of different films, but he's done a series of films which features um, an actor who appears in a lot of his films uh, playing um, a, a Buddhist monk uh, walking very, very, very slowly through different cities. Uh, and the one that's mostly available, you can get it on DVD, is called Journey to the West, uh, and that's Marseille. And it's about an hour long, um, and you know, glacial. I mean, if you just quickly looked at, at the screen, you wouldn't think he's moving at all. It's really, really slow form of kind of walking meditation. Um, but, you know, uh, what you get around that is the flow and flux of the city as it's going about its business anyway. So your attention is drawn more to uh, what's going on around the monk rather than the monk himself. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of device for you to kind of... It's, it's inviting the, uh, the viewer to dwell. So this is the idea of dwell space. So you, you're being brought into to that space in a way almost as if you was there in the city just watching the world go by type of thing. So it's very, very slow. Uh, it's... Um, Sounds quite immersive. Very immersive. Uh, mm. And it's about time, mm. okay? And it slows down. Uh, and, you know, you've got to adjust to the rhythm to it. But once you have adjusted to it, and this is borne out in experiments I've done with other slow media as well, you kind of slip into it. It can almost become compelling. I tell my students this, they think I'm, uh, you know, I think I'm mad. How can this be compelling? But it, it's like you slip into a kind of uh, meditation rhythm. Um, so that's a whole new way of thinking about um, what the moving image can do in relation to how it's structuring our sense of time. Uh, and more importantly, why people are uh, gravitating towards that. Why is there more visibility around issues of slowness, ambience, uh, recently read a wonderful book about ambient media by Paul Roquette, is it? Um, which is focusing on Japan. But that sense of, yeah, he's talking about media, air is media, water is media. Um, you know, so the idea of atmospheres, uh, dwelling in an atmosphere, um, and how media ecologies, media environments, media landscapes become kind of hooked up with that and trying to unpick all that. Um, I think that's kind of where I'm headed. I don't know if that, how precise a roadmap that was, but that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. It's good to finish 
on a map, which is where we started. Yeah, indeed. So, uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Les. Thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you.